0: Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Leslie Brody on the show with me today. She has an amazing new book. It's called Sometimes You Have to Lie, The Life and Times of Louise Fitzhugh, renegade author of Harriet the Spy. And, uh, you know, if if you have uh, been tuned in to children's literature for, I don't know, the last four or five decades, then... You know all about Harriet the Spy and uh, louise Fitzhugh, and and this is a great book that really peels back the the covers of um of a, a a person who brought characters to our lives and what a fascinating character she was in her own life. Um anyway, we'll get out into all that in just a minute. Welcome to the show, Leslie.
1: Thank you. So pleased to be here.
0: Uh, Leslie, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller?
1: <laughs> um, uh, I think um, I thought I wanted to be a writer for real. Uh, I was like a, a kid who had a certain talent, and I said I was third or fourth grade, and um. I- Stories as a lot of kids did about the other kids in my class. Um, my father encouraged me, and he was a member of District 65 Union, which is a New York City, a garment district union, and they had a newspaper. And um, I had written something for my class about democracy. I think it was you know you we can walk up a staircase. From the Stone Age into, you know, a, a jewel case of diamonds. That could be democracy. That was my, that was my little <laughs> essay. My father thought it was, you know, something that he was so proud of. He gave it to the union newspaper, and it was published. And I, afterwards, forever was addicted to seeing my work in print. <laughs> Having my father's support like that was just amazing. I love it, it. Yeah. And I'll just say that it was published, my byline was, um, father's name was Steve Brody, so his byline was uh, um, Brother Steve Brody's Daughter. (laughs) 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 was a union organizing in 1965 or
0: something. That is fantastic. And, and, you know... um... We often hear uh, stories of of uh, people that that got bitten by the writing bug early on and then get the encouragement of of someone older in their life, whether it be a parent or a teacher. and you know there can be some pretty dark times in a writer's life, and mm-hmm. you know when you're sitting in a room all by yourself with you and mm-hmm. your your computer or your typewriter or whatnot. And in, invariably, your mind goes back to those early moments of encouragement and, and how w- what a great role they play in the writer's life later on.
1: hmm. So so true. I mean, my family were, were great readers, um, but the books were usually genre genre novels from off drugstore racks. So sure. Lots of science fiction and um, mystery novels and crime novels. Pulp novels, just but endless amounts of them they were always everywhere at the house. Everybody was always reading during dinner.
0: That's fantastic um Leslie, I know that you went on to become a creative writing professor and mm-hmm. uh and uh, and you've written uh numerous biographies um what what led you to uh to teaching writing
1: oh wow um, well i I had a long career being a freelance writer. I was a book critic, and I spent 20 years in the theater as a playwright and uh working in different companies. Um, and you know, I it, there's a sense I always thought I was something like a intellectual, but I was an autodidact. I was always self trained <clears throat> after after college. I I thought at one point I I just really wanted to go back to graduate school and learn. And I did that. I went to stores at UConn university of Connecticut, and I found four years of just study was the best thing that I could have ever done for myself at that time. Um, it was like going into a, a convent or something. It was just incredibly (laughs) internal and just reading because I, I'd been doing working, I said, as a, a book critic, but I felt a little bit like a fraud. Um, although I had read widely, I hadn't read with much focus. So once I went back to the university and I studied and I just loved studying, it turned out that I, I didn't know this because I was a terrible student in high school. Um, and even then I was kind of in college, not very focused, but I love it turned out I loved reading literature. And so the natural progression was want to teach it i you know I loved what my professors did I wanted to somehow reproduce that excitement in education
0: what your your uh time that you spent as a playwright um how do you feel that that uh affected your your uh career as a writer um as as a um as a prose writer um shall we say because uh there's there's something very different about having your work interpreted by a reader, who's gonna sit down and, and, and read your biography or a, a company of actors who might take your words and then, um, you know, act them out before an audience, that, that the, the reception of what you write is, can be a little different. How, how do you feel like one might have informed the other?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, um, I have to say that writing plays and, uh, fiction, I found much more freeing. Uh, I love writing biography, but you really do have to stick to the facts. And when you make up uh dialogue, for example, it's often just a placeholder for when you find the dialogue, the person really did say, or somebody said about them, you know, if you want to from propel the plot that way with some point. Um I love writing dialogue, but you really can't do that much in biography. I think, however, uh being a playwright really helps you discover like interior lives of the people you're writing about, and you can bring that over to biography. Um and I think vice versa. Does that make any sense?
0: Have, absolutely. Absolutely. Um what was it that got you interested in writing biographies?
1: Oh, well, I, you know, I've just really been very curious all my life. And I, as I read and as I studied and I would always come across these people who were like usually marginal figures in an, in a landscape. Um, and I just kept lists of these, mostly women, mostly women I felt hadn't been, uh, had, hadn't had their voices heard or you know who people didn't know about um but who were available who saw things from a perspective that maybe wasn't central um i did that myself i wrote a memoir about coming of age in the 70s and about uh growing up you know as a young radical and as someone who saw uh, what we called the revolution at that point but i wasn't central i was definitely in the you know I was someone in the bleachers um and but it gave that story a very different perspective and so I was always really interested in hearing the perspective of peoples whose lives were both who the intersection of public and private life, but telling it from the perspective of someone who wasn't actually central but saw it happening so that was a sort of impetus, and then I had this you know developed this list of people I want to know about. And one of the the first one that I wanted to know about was Jessica Mitford, who had always been a, a really fascinating character to me through my life and someone, a journalist in the 60s, whose work always made me laugh and who I thought had a great um, point of view. When I started writing the, the, the biography of Jessica Mitford, I had no idea that there was such a Midford industry, that she was one of five sisters about whom Hundreds of books had been written because they were all interesting. Um, And so I just fell into this very deep hole. It was very hard to find anything, you know, and I had to kind of work my way towards getting anything original to say about her. But it's a great learning experience that I was able to bring forward to writing about the life and times of Louise Fitzhugh. And this, this is the first book about Louise Fitzhugh and her life.
0: So reading your uh, your author's note um, that was included, um, you you tell this story about also being um, an 11 year old uh, in in a place where you could have possibly crossed paths. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. And and (laughs) when when did when did you become fascinated with uh, with Harriet, the spy and the woman behind uh, the characters that we all love?
1: Um, In 1963, when Louise was 35 and writing Harriet the Spy, uh, about an 11-year-old girl lived in New York. I was also an 11-year-old girl who lived in New York. Um, The Harriet lived on the Upper East Side of New York City, very upper-class environment. My family, I was born in the Bronx, and uh, my family of five had migrated over several years to Long Island, and then ultimately found ourselves at the end of Long Island, um, where my father, who always wanted to work for himself, had opened a junkyard, which was called A and B Auto Wrecking. And it turned out in that this place beyond Long Island was just a few miles from the place where, um, from the, the very ritzy Long Island town that Louise FitzHugh lived in in the summers, and that the um, <laughs> That the the railroad station that her friends um, would arrive at to go visit her was actually right across the street from my father's junkyard, and it had a there was a diner there, run by the amazing Mrs. D. That's all it's the only name we ever knew her by, Mrs. D. And um, she was like a someone from another planet, or certainly from a very different time. And she always we always thought she walked, had walked out of like a World War II movie. <laughs> and she wore hair and a hairnet and she had long house dresses. And all her she only had like a like a like two burners. And on one burner she was always frying hamburgers and on the other she was always brewing this incredibly overcooked coffee. And that's what you could get there. Um, unless you wanted to order a sandwich. And the sandwich that I like to order was um, it was a tomato sandwich, which was a BLT. Hold the toast, hold the bacon. So it was just a <laughs> tomato sandwich on mayonnaise with mayonnaise on white bread. And um, so the story that I tell in the author's note is that maybe you know this wasn't my own intention, Maybe this was a sandwich that. Mrs. D was also serving to um, other people who came through the diner, which may well have been, uh, uh, you know, a very young looking painter dressed in painter's overalls with cropped hair who was waiting for her friends who were arriving from the city. And that may have been Louise Fitzhugh. So she may have gotten the idea of the tomato sandwich by uh, sitting in Mrs. D's. And listening to another eleven-year-old give her order—that
0: <laughs> <laughs> is fantastic. I love that, um, Leslie. If I'm not mistaken, you had another um, run-in with with Harriet the Spy uh, and and Miss um, Fitzhugh in the late '80s. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, that's—I was a playwright, as I said, and I was—I um, was commissioned to write an adaptation of Harriet the Spy for the Children's Theater of Minneapolis, which is where I was living at the time. Um, And so that was produced, but we were only permitted to do one production. And so uh, about 20 years passed, and then the estate started to permit productions again. So I would say that about in the last five years, there's maybe been 50 new productions of Harriet the Spy, which is really phenomenal. To me, it's very exciting. Students get to embody the characters that they love. That's the thing about children's theater. You know, if you get a kid to love literature, to love reading, they love a particular book. If they can see that on stage and then they can be in the book, right? They right. can say those words. Nothing like it, really.
0: Jackson's battle to take control over his own mind and life portrays what millions of people are fighting with around the world, mental illness. His mother, desperate to free him from his demons and desperation, faces her own turmoil and anguish, doing anything possible to save her son through love and hope. After countless emotional and heartbreaking triumphant moments, June and her son must both accept that only Jackson can save himself. Pick up Jackson by Lynn McLaughlin and discover why people are raving about this book and saying things like, Jackson is symbolic of millions living with some form of mental illness and his mother represents the millions who have their own struggles caring for someone with a mental health issue. Jackson by Lynn McLaughlin. Pick it up today at Amazon.com. Both Barrels Publishing is the brainchild of successful indie author James P. Sumner. He has self-published over 15 titles in the last five years and has over 800,000 downloads so far in his career, meaning he has a wealth of knowledge and experience to share with the indie publishing community. Knowing the struggles of the modern-day indie author as well as he does, he wanted to create a platform that would allow writers of any level to learn the ropes, navigate the pitfalls, and produce a professional novel without wasting time or money in the process. Both Barrels Publishing is the perfect one-stop shop for any indie author, combining James's expertise with his own team of editors and designers so you can help your novel realize its full potential and learn how to publish yourself. The purpose of Both Barrels Publishing is to help indie authors get their novels ready for publication without all the stress, hassle, and unnecessary expense. We want to make your lives easier, which is why we're giving you access to a top-notch team to publish your novels, along with a generous discount on their services. You can also work one-on-one with James to learn the intricacies of self-publishing. No hidden costs, no false promises. We simply want you to publish the best version of your novel. BothBarrelsPublishing.com was, uh, was that your first, uh, brush with, uh, with Louise Fitzhugh's work at that point or had yes. you, okay. Uh, how yes. did you, yes. what, uh, what led you after that? Uh, what, what kept this on your mind, uh, that you eventually pursued a biography of her?
1: Okay. So that, I mean, the story is, is, is pretty runs pretty quickly from there. It's, it's, I hadn't read the book before; It had been in the background, you know, culturally, but I had not read it. I was asked to read it as opposed to all the all the fanatical people who desperately wanted to adapt it. Um, but I sort of was in the right place at the right time. Um, so I, I got the book, and I read it, and then I wanted to fa- I was fanatical about it. I was not <laughs> going to let anybody else but me do it. I, it was just amazing to me that I had somehow missed her. And here I had found her and how serendipitous it was, how wonderful to have found her after all this time. And so I, um, I loved the book. I love everything she's written and I wanted to think about it, um, and write about it, but I wasn't really ready yet. Uh, I didn't know how to write a biography. I had to come to it. This is my, uh, this is my fourth book. And I think this is the book that really pulls together all the things that I've learned about, you know, talking about other people, about writing social history, about writing about the places where people's personal and public lives intersect. Um, And, of course, I love this period of time. She's, uh, you know, living in Greenwich Village in the 1950s and 60s. She goes to Paris to become a painter. I'm really interested in the aftermath of world war II, of the area era around the Vietnam war. And that's my time. So I, I felt that I was able to bring all of that to this book.
0: What were, um, what were some of the the first things that you discovered about her that maybe surprised you and went counter to maybe what her public persona as the, the author of Harriet, the spy, um, w- w- what were some of those first revelations uh, that you stumbled upon?
1: Well, I discovered that she was an extremely charismatic person who people just loved. If they liked her, they loved her. But she could be very argumentative, so not everybody loved her. Um, <laughs> but for those who did, she was. Uh, it went beyond just you know she she somehow there was some connection to people. Wanted to to cultivate her genius. People recognized that she was someone, a real meteorite, you know, someone who was so different and um and yet a difficult person. So people, friends made lots of adjustments for her. She was um she was someone who argued a lot, but her friendship was so worth it, said one of her best friends. Um so there was that charisma. The other thing was that she insisted on being herself. Um, when, let's see, well, she, she started dating women in high school. And of course, it was in Memphis. She grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. She was born in 1928. Uh, there was like, a she, in an upper class society, um, segregation, Jim Crow, white supremacy was the, uh, the milieu, right? Right. Uh, Louise was opposed to that, disgusted by it as soon as she recognized what it was and the, and her position. And she was desperate to leave Memphis. She always said one of her most famous quotes is bury me North of the Mason Dixon line. (laughs) She just (laughs) wanted to leave the South because of uh, what she saw as, you know, the prejudice and the discrimination that existed there and how she was implicated in it. Um, and she was, I mean, her her family, just two generations before had been, uh, you know, officers in the Confederacy. They'd been slaveholders. Her family were very wealthy, privileged people whose fortunes had been made because of the work that Black Americans had done to build the foundation of the family's fortune, um, uh, you know, picking the cotton for but you know to move forward, so she knew this, so she was ready to get out of there, so I am digressing, but I want to say so, in addition to that charisma, um, she knew she was a lesbian and she wanted to and but she didn't wasn't willing to hide herself for very long. She was always straining. To get out and be who she wanted to be. And in fact, by 1950, by the time she was, you know, 20 or so, uh, she had inherited some money. She was always fortunate in terms of money. Um, and she said, I'm never wearing men women's, I'm sorry, I'm never wearing women's clothes again. And she didn't was from that time on, uh, always wore what she wanted. She presented herself as she wanted. But to get back to your question, the other part that I recognized better that she could be enormously shy with strangers. So you get this two-part personality. She's very charismatic with people who she knew and very shy, which made, her, made it virtually impossible for her to go on tours or to present herself in a public way as an author. She just wanted to be left alone to be herself, basically. And that's one of her, you know, the themes through Harry the Spy and all her work is, is basically, you know, Someone is who they are. Let us be who we are.
0: When when you're dealing with a, a subject uh that is uh, it, she was born in the 1920s, um and later in life um was was more vocal publicly. Um, but there was a lot of her life where um we just don't it doesn't seem that we have a lot of information about her. How do you start digging? To find these uh, these little tidbits that that make out the full picture of a person's life,
1: I was really fortunate. Um, uh, I had, well, on one hand, I had a really terrific researcher working with me, um, who's a fantastic literary detective. Her name is Regina White, um, and she would find uh, this kind of lost people these she'd excavate this history and then she'd hand over the names and the addresses then i would go do the legwork i would um i would track people down and i would do the interviews and um it was really a fabulous you know we both felt like these literary detectives uncovering these lost worlds and that was (laughs) really exciting um um you know, we got a couple of really great uh, tips and a couple of lucky breaks, and we found Sandra Scapinone, who was the co-author with Louise on two on on one uh, children's book, which is "Bang Bang, You're Dead," and the other one, um, she she was the writer of Suzuki Bean, which was Louise's first book. Louise did the illustrations for it. And Sandra gave us the name to many other friends, but the most important was Alex Gordon. Um, Louise considered herself married to Alex for about a decade, and Alex was still alive when I found her, and we had many long interviews. So in many ways, this book is told from the perspective of Alex Gordon, Um, they were even long after they were no longer together, Alex and she remained friends, and she was Louise's confidant. So pretty much, she had an opinion about almost everything that <laughs> Louise experienced.
0: Did you get any glimpses into uh, Louise's creative process?
1: Um, well, I can tell you two things. One is she was a perfectionist when it came to her art, and she did consider her Herself first, a visual artist and a painter. Um, and then uh, she drew. She drew incredible. Well, you know the parrot, the spy pictures. She drew, drew a lot of um pictures of American archetypes. Her work was satirical in many ways. Um, and she wanted to make points. She wanted to use her work to describe her position on different issues the drawings the paintings were, were less like that um um her process so so she would destroy the paintings that she didn't like she's always said well i don't want them to show up in a garage sale somewhere <laughs> um and as far as the um the writing went She was hard to critique. She didn't like to be edited. Although the first book, of course, was this very famous uh, Harriet the Spy story of her working with famous authors, I mean, famous editors, Ursula Nordstrom and Charlotte Zolotow, who were very influential in that first book, helping her develop it and build it from a, a very small proposal nine pages into the into the wonderful book that it became
0: do you did you get any glimpses into um what the motivations behind harriet were and where this character came from
1: that's a good question and the motivations why why um are you asking why louise wrote harriet
0: yeah. Yeah. Where did Harriet come from? And what what significance did Harriet have uh, to Louise?
1: OK, well, I'll be perfectly frank with you. Louise was trying everything. She just had a um, an, a gallery show of her paintings that had not gone well. Um, she had tried to write a play um, uh, for adults that was not being uh, taken seriously she had written a novel that she felt frustrated by and she had had her one success had been this children's book, Suzuki Bean. So she was just playing around with different, uh, forms and, and to make a living. She was tired. She had a hidden allowance from her family in Memphis, but that meant they kept her tied to them in some way in Louise's mind. And She didn't really want that anymore. So she was always looking for ways to achieve independence. And it occurred to her, just sat down and started to think about this young, this 11-year-old who lived on the Upper East Side, which was where she lived. And she set Harriet's story in her neighborhood. And in some ways, the things that Louise saw in her neighborhood, she kind of, you know, imbued. You know, Harry embodies that curiosity that that Louise felt about the different people in her neighborhood. Louise was very sympathetic with the eleven year old mind. That is not to say that she was in any way childish, but she had sympathy and she saw things in in the way that kids could see because she gave them full agency. She believed in children's liberation. She believed, you know, that kids ought to be given the opportunity to be everything that they might be um, um i think the other thing is that she really enjoyed finally sitting down and she told her friend James Barrell, the poet said i've just you know i'm writing this book now about an 11-year-old who's a a, a nasty 11-year-old girl who writes about everybody and <laughs> You know, and she does, right? She just keeps her journal and she notes down everything. And, uh, and that scares the people who are being written about. And that's really interesting.
0: Huh? When, when someone picks up this book and, and reads it and gets to the end and closes that back cover of Sometimes You Have to Lie, um, what do you hope, Leslie, that they're left with? Um, other than knowing more about an author that we all love, um, but what do you? What is it about her story, um, mm-hmm. that you hope is is translated to us, the readers?
1: That's a good question. Um, well, I don't think that Louise is as uh, is appreciated as her character. She wrote this brilliant classic literary phenomenon, <laughs> and it has sort of overshadowed her own life. And she was every bit as brilliant and curious and, um, and full of contradictions as her character, Harriet. Um, but Louise was sort of lost in that. One of the reasons is because she's a children's author. Um, and for many years, the idea, although we promote our children uh, books and we want our kids to read. The authors sometimes become are behind the scenes. They're not as uh, recognizable as the the characters themselves as the books, and that could be sometimes the author's choice. Sometimes it is the choice of the estate because sometimes the estate and and cult and the culture. Uh, in tandem, think that a children's author needs to be a certain way or uh needs to be um, just behind the scenes, let's say kept you know sure. behind the curtain um, and that's I think one of the things that happened here is is Louis got frozen in this moment in time and um and people didn't really look backwards or or or, uh, you know, see her as a, didn't look back to her childhood as much, or or see who she really was as an adult. And so my book is about Louise Fitzhugh, the adult.
0: I love it. The book is called Sometimes You Have to Lie, The Life and Times of Louise Fitzhugh, Renegade Author of Harriet the Spy. It's available everywhere now, wherever you grab books, you can get it in hardcover or audiobook. Uh Is is it in Kindle edition as well?
1: It is. Uh
0: Great. However you consume books, you can grab it. Uh, We'll put links to it in the show notes of this episode. Um, Leslie, this has been so much fun chatting. If people are just learning about you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, is there a place where they can connect with you online?
1: Um, I do have a website, um, and it is uh, lesliebrodyauthor.com.
0: We'll be sure to put a link there as well to make it easy for folks to find you. Uh, Leslie, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show today.
1: Thank you. Terrific. Thank you so much for having me.
0: And we'll cut it right there. Uh, That was fantastic. Thank you, Leslie.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: Absolutely.
1: This is so much fun, but I have to say you are my first radio interview about this book. So I hope that I, you know, didn't, I wasn't,
0: you know, Oh, it was I've, great.
1: Now I'm, now I'm finding myself <laughs> outside,
0: but I hope I wasn't during the show. <laughs> no, you were perfect. Uh, when we release the show on Monday, we'll be sure to send you a link and we'll promote it everywhere.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much. Great. Okay. Thank
0: you, Leslie. Have a great day.
1: You too. Bye you too.
0: bye. Bye bye. A hitman with a conscience. Ian Bragg is paid to kill people, only bad people and not many, but for a great deal of money case the target, make the hit, move on, until he meets the woman with sparkling green eyes who changes everything. A few pre-readers had this to say about Ian Bragg. Mark Dawson, million-selling thriller author, says a rip-roaring ride from start to breathless finish. Craig Martell hit a home run with the operator. The taut, lean prose and lightning-fast pace make this a page-turner without sacrificing an ounce of story or depth. You'll find yourself rooting for the hitman main character as he faces the toughest decision of his career. The Operator is the start of a new thriller series I expect to see burning up bestseller list for years to come, says AC Fuller, author of The Crime Beat and Alex Vane Media Thrillers. Suave, romantic, and lethal, Ian Bragg is everything you want in a highly paid assassin. Can't wait to ride this train, says James Blatch, self-publishing formula. It's been a long time since I fell this hard in love with a book, a very long time, author of Women of Wine County Romantic Suspense Terry Wells Brown says. Grab this book from Craig Martell, The Operator. Bone Thief, John Driscoll Book One by Thomas O'Callaghan. A sociopathic killer is using the internet to lure seemingly random women to their gruesome deaths, in New York City. During his heinous murder spree, this madman is extracting the bones of his victims. His sheer brutality has the residents of the Big Apple in panic mode. Who is this twisted psycho who's abducted a housewife in broad daylight only to dispose of her lifeless body alongside a lake in Prospect Park, nailed the boneless remains of a nameless drifter to the underside of a boardwalk at Rockaway Beach, allowed the gutted corpse of a single parent to wash ashore under the Brooklyn Bridge and has had the audacity to leave the desecrated body of the Magnolia T heiress rotting atop trash at one of the city's sanitation dumps. NYPD's top cop, Homicide Commander John W. Driscoll, has never witnessed such savagery. Hammered daily by the District Attorney, the Mayor and the Police Commissioner, the Lieutenant who's battling his own inner demons, must use every resource available to put an end to the killings. In a race against time, Driscoll, aided by Sergeant Allegante and Detective Cedric Tomlinson, sets out on a roller coaster of an investigation to first identify the villainous fiend and then put an end to his butchering. Grab Bone Thief by Thomas O'Callaghan now.